he's standing in my way of being what I always dreamed to be as a woman. Well, then you didn't dream of being a godly woman. Because what he wants, he tells us what he wants. Hey, guys, if you have a problem being oppositional and you've never walked through Matthew 18 with somebody, you equally have a problem. What's up, boss? This is Abraham's wallet. We span the gap between the austerity of obedience to God and the prosperity rising from faithfulness. Run your home and your dough like a biblical boss. Hello, friends and fans of Abraham's Wallet, and welcome if you're just stumbled upon us somehow. Uh, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the co-hosts here at Abraham's Wallet. Uh, this week's topic is unusual, so I'm, it needs a little preface from me. Some of you know that I run a ministry school, and so I do a little bit of teaching out in the wider world. This week, we're going to post a talk that I gave a few weeks ago to a group of house churches that came together and just some other folks who, who are part of our uh, ministry school. The topic that I'm covering is not going to feel like a standard Abraham's Wallet topic. Um, Mark uh, Parrott, my co-host and myself, talk often about what topics are within our Abe's Wallet purview. So when you tune in, you can often expect us to be talking about one of two areas. If you look at where we label each episode, we, evil, we either label it under home or dough. And so dough is we're just going to be talking about money and how to handle money. We're often talking about scripture and how the scriptures um, guide us in the way that we think and do money. And then we also have a topic called home, which is just how do I run my home and my family in a way that follows biblical standards and sets our family up for long-term multi-generational success. Now, I'll just confess to you that as time goes on, I, I do more head scratching about what exactly our purview is because there was a time in American history when the, the family leader could simply be responsible with his money, live a godly life, try to follow the descriptions of elders that are in First Timothy, Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and think this is the kind of character I want. This is the direction I'm going with my family. Go to your local church, um, mail it in, and you wouldn't have to worry about wider issues. And there are, there are questions that are arising these days that I don't think we can sleep on anymore. And I think we have, to, if you just, just a rank and file family leader is having to ask questions these days about what church is. What is church government? How does that work now? Um, like I said, I was speaking to a, a group of, of house churches. So if you're in, if you're part of a house church, you, you got to be asking governmental kind of questions. Who's running this? Who do we submit to exactly? How are, how are things supposed to be set up? We should be asking doctrinal questions these days because 
many churches are failing at having sound doctrine because it's culturally unacceptable in in a way that it never has been to be doctrinally sound. And so there are just, it's hard. So I'm saying all that to say there's just kind of a weird stew uh, culturally that's happening um, right now. And so the, the things that I could recommend that a family leader and a guy who's trying to lead his home and dough like a biblical boss to be aware of and thinking about is much is, is broadening. That's about, that's about all I can say. It, it's, it's broadening the things that we should be aware of. Who, who'd have thought that you and I would be doing medical research to try to figure out, well, what, what's a reasonable medication for a novel virus? What, a, what, what about variants of this virus? What are the implications of that? Now, how, how do spike proteins work exactly? How, what, what do vaccinations do historically? Now, is this new thing a vaccine? And how does that, I mean, we're just in strange waters that, that I don't think we, we had to do this kind of work. So um, that's all my caveats to say, look, if you tuned in today, you wanted some financial insight or you wanted a, a basic principle of home management like, Oh, the, the roles in the home or parenting or something like that. You will not hurt my feelings to tune out and go maybe on another day, Abraham's wallet will hit in the middle. This, this is outside of that purview, but obviously I believe this is a really important central issue. There is a, as you're going to hear me say in a second, uh, I believe that there is a foundational issue happening in churches that we're missing. And under our own noses, we're being fed something that's biblically speaking half-baked. And so I think we have to know our way around a really foundational biblical issue, which is what, what exactly are the lines between grace and legalism? And legalism gets thrown around these days for anything that is challenging or that that um, makes me feel put upon. We we call it legalism and move on. And then I think grace is probably a little too generously applied these days as well. Um, I'll explain that as we go on. So I just want I just wanted to say this is not normal. What you're about to hear, if you don't want to proceed. No problem. You'll still be able to open up IRAs and do smart things with your budget and savings. Uh, You can come back on another day and listen to that stuff. No problem. If you're going to wade into these waters with me, I just want to give you some semblance of what this, what this setup is. Okay. This is a group of people who were going to get together on a Saturday afternoon at this huge field and there was going to be like an all-day cookout thing and bring the kids and it was going to be great. Well, guess what? It poured down raining that day. So what we did was we made like a little village of people with awnings all just pushing their little tent areas together and we all kind of huddled together and we had a day of worship and teaching. It was good, but it wasn't what we thought it was going to be. So as I'm speaking, you will hear some wind blowing. You will hear, you might hear rain. You're definitely going to hear times when like the, the, the awnings would fill up with water and then they would just all dump out. So you hear a big splash, etc. You hear that as I'm talking. So give, give us some grace from an audio uh, 
standpoint. So anyways, all that to say, I'm going to turn you over to myself speaking to a, a group of, of house churches as we get into the topic of uh, legalism and uh, licentiousness. I'll just say this right before I do that. It is time for year-end summits, so I really encourage you to to plan that and make room for that. Year-end summit is just our term for going away with your spouse, making some plans, praying, setting goals for the year to come. If you're interested in doing something like that with your spouse, Abraham's Wallet would be happy to furnish you with a guide that we've written. All you have to do is get some time away with your spouse, take our guide with you and you'll be walked through the the steps of how to set some goals for the year to come with your spouse so write us if uh, if we can help you that way otherwise i'll turn you over to me now and uh thanks for hanging with everybody hope this blesses you Stephen, I said, my eyes are being open to what I maybe fell prey to. Stephen said, hey, you should read the book, The Benedict Option. Um, and it's about building a real community that's going to be a shelter um, and, and all the beauty of rhythms and being in a center together. And uh, he said, so for instance, that might be we come together and we create a covenant of how we want to live and what we agree with. And that could be starting with like what movies we watch. And I said, but wait, that sounds like legalism. And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) And corrected me in my thinking. Um, Because I've always been on guard against the religious spirit. Good. And, but confused now as I know more of like, what does that look like? Okay, thank you, Sarah. That's a good setup. The, the things that Sarah brought up are very present uh, to me uh, because, here's the, the setup, there will be terrible times in the last days. And so there's a posture about the very end times that is 100% appropriate for anybody who wants to follow Christ. If, you don't, if you're not properly postured towards the very end times, you're just not in step with the Spirit of God. We also see in Matthew 24 that the very end, this is the big drum roll, you know, the, you know, the Lord of the Rings when the big deep drums are starting in the distance, you go, oh shoot. This is the, oh shoot, deep drums that are happening permanently is that Matthew 24 says the love of most will grow cold. The love of most will grow cold. I think, well, I, I'm I, I'm part of the pie. I'm somewhere in all. Well, the love of most will grow cold. Uh, how can I not be in that part of the pie? Well, it's most of the pie. Oh, uh, how can I make sure I'm not in that part of the pie? So the way that we interpret the days that we're living in And the way that we stay close to the Spirit of God, which includes making sure that our doctrine is pure, which is something we're commanded to do toward the end times. And that's the that's the worm that's got into Sarah's mind is she's inspecting doctrine in a new way. She's realizing, as we'll talk about next week, there's promises and guarantees for a proliferation of false teachers. 
and they've come specifically to draw you away from the Lord. They've specifically assigned by a very smart character who has strategically put them in place to draw you away from the heart of God. And the biblical writers would say these things are evidenced in bad doctrine. So I'm going to talk about a doctrine point here. And I didn't have to set it up that way, but that's really where we land based on Sarah's questions. My pullback from, from what, I, what I want to talk about is the relationship between obedience and legalism. And whether our calling one another toward, toward obedience is some form of legalism or legalism will be just at arm's reach if we try to do that. And what about the kind of attitude that's prevalent today, which is love means you affirm me no matter what's going on, no matter what I do, no matter what choices I make. Isn't that what Christian love is? And if you didn't take that stance, would that be legalism? Okay. I feel the drums beating already. Why don't we just pray? Spirit, Jesus said about you in John 16 that you would come to teach us. One of the things that you came to teach us is what righteousness is. We don't know what that is unless you teach us. Yeshua also taught us that you would teach us what sin is. We don't know what that is unless you teach us. So we're asking you to break the bread of your word for us. We want to eat it. If you have in your heart that you want to eat the bread of God's word, just say yes in your heart to him right now. God, I want the bread of your word. Now, Lord, we're asking you to break the bread of your word. You, can't get, you cannot shove a loaf in my mouth. It won't fit. I need you to just tear off a little piece for me so that I can take it in and I'll receive it, Lord. We want your word and we ask you to explain to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. My, my little backup for this topic is um, to ask what we think the goal of the gospel is. This is how I'm landing. This is my way in. What do you think the goal of the gospel is? And, and I specifically want to address the things that were popular, that, that you would popularly um, conclude might be the goal of the gospel if you just stopped into our, our church meetings. I've been on a I've been on a short church tour for several months, hanging around, looking around, snooping around, seeing what's happening in the old churches. Some of it's encouraging. A lot of it is disquieting. And if you just had to, if you didn't know any better, but you just had to assemble a guess based on experience. Here's what these people do and say. Here's what all their songs say. Here's what their here's how they handle their little what is the goal of the gospel? One of the conclusions you could draw is that the goal of the gospel is that you would just be more you. You can get a t-shirt at Target that'll say the exact that very thing. I'm sure of it. Just be more you because you're beautiful and you're valuable and you're great just the way you are. Don't let anybody try to change you. You just so wonderful. We just want more of you, more. And the best that we could come up with, gospel-wise, our best hope is that Jesus would just unleash you. I'm me, and Jesus helped me. 
see how glorious I am, and now I don't struggle with any self-hatred. I love myself. The end. High fives. We can all go home. Okay, that's one of the things I see. Another possible goal of the gospel is that you is is um, just you just looked at our scene would be you getting more, you getting more of X. We could fill in that blank with whatever you think you want more of. Uh, a very hot one that's for me, the top of the list is this is what's hot 2021 freedom. That's the number one thing that we want Jesus to deliver to us. You can look at all of our worship songs. They say, the reason I love him is because he brings me freedom. And freedom is defined as really connected to the Target t-shirt. I'll just do whatever I want to do. That's the freedom is that, hooray, I've been given unlimited license. Preaching freedom without submission to Christ is grotesque. Can you imagine a completely free Stephen? It's me. Yikes, nobody wants that. But we want to be constrained. Did you ever you hear this little verse? Maybe you've heard of it. It's a little secret one in Romans 8. It's my destiny to be conformed to the image of Christ. Conformed, whenever I hear the word conform, I think of those little Play-Doh things. Where you take a ball of Play-Doh and then you squash it. You cram it in there. And the little Play-Doh that comes out of the seams, you cut that off. It's not part of the little snowman I'm trying to make. You cut that off. And then you open it up and you go, this has been conformed in the image of snowman. And everything that's not snowman got to go. That's what being conformed into the image of Christ means. The best thing that could possibly happen to you is that you would find yourself folded into him and everything that's not him as he conforms you gets cut off. Our definition for freedom should be the ability to pursue God. That's freedom. So when I think of fighting for someone's freedom, I'm trying to get rid of strongholds because a stronghold will keep you from seeing what the Lord is actually saying to you. You can't actually hear what he's saying because the spirit of rejection or occult is keeping you from actually hearing what he's saying. So when I think of fighting for freedom, I think yank those things out of the way so we can hear him. He might say to you what he said to Tozer, which is I want you to pray eight hours a day. I don't want you going anywhere. You just stay in there. What about my freedom, Lord? Excuse me? Let me say it again. I told you to go pray for eight hours a day. Just stay there. We could also fill that blank with love or boldness is pretty hot these days. He gives me more boldness based on uh, Sarah's prophetic community. It could be more insight. What we want is insight and revelation. That's the number one goal of the gospel is that Jesus would give me revelation. If he doesn't, we have a problem. I know I'm out. I don't know. I must not be walking with the spirit of God because where's the revelation? I'm just not getting the insight right now. That guy I don't trust because there doesn't seem to be a lot of revelation going on in his scene, etc., etc. You see what I'm saying? Community is also one of these false flags. What the end, the end of it all is that I would have community. And I'm really here, here, you know, I'm really here uh, going around the Jesus scene because really at the end of the day, I'm trying to find my people. And I'm, I'm, community is what I'm really after. 
I'll give you one more. The goal of the gospel. This is not this is not new at all. This has been around at least a hundred years. But what what used to be called the social gospel is that the end of the gospel is that the world would get fixed in some way. And probably I get to decide how I would like the world to be fixed. And I will just sit here in the corner and fold my arms until Jesus or somebody fixes the world in this specific way. And then I'll be satisfied. And then all will be well. Each of these answers uh, is utterly bankrupt to the point of idolatry. So it would be great for us to just drop the poison out of our hands, if that's where we come from. Any other freedom or any other goal, really, that we have displays where our heart really is. So the question is, do you want him or do you want any of the thousand benefits that go along with him? You know, community actually is one of the side benefits for um, being with him. Do you know that? Yes. It is. Psalm 68 says that he puts the lonely into families. I've experienced that in my life. I've been alone in my life, and he has connected me. Do you also know that if it's his choice, he can put you on ISO for years out in the desert, in the wilderness. Do you know that? Yes. Okay. That really can happen. Do you know whose choice that is? His. There's something called the dark night of the soul that, that uh, St. John of the Cross kind of stumbled upon and wrote about. Uh, I've been there. I've been on ISO. You know who else was on ISO? Paul was on ISO. That's a basketball term. Sorry. When you're stuck on one side of the court, just you and another guy. The Lord said to me, you're not going anywhere. I'm just, it's you and me, pal. I'm like, but I want to play. Sorry, you're going to about to have a bad year. Oh, okay. Because the Lord deals with people. He did that with Paul. He did that with Elijah. He did that with, let me see, what's his name? Jesus. That's it. Um, he will put you out alone sometimes if he wants to get to you. So if your God, what I'm trying to say is if your God is community, you won't receive him that way. You'll say, no thanks. What I'm after is community. Christianity's movement towards meism as the end of the gospel results in all kinds of terrible songs. And one way that one way it's kind of the naked way that we express our hearts is through artwork. Um, we had a kind of traumatic uh, car crash years ago, and my daughter was too young to really be able to articulate. And we had some therapists tell us, have her draw pictures of what happened. And then you can find some traction there and start processing through or what happened. That's very com that's a very common therapy move is having children draw pictures because our artwork expresses our hearts. Um, the things I'm talking about don't get said explicitly from pulpits. You won't find a pastor and say, what we're here to do is help you worship yourself. They don't say that. It's what they do. And they produce these kinds of people, and it shows up in our artwork. Would you like to hear the lyrics of a song? We'll talk about this garbage? Well, I've printed out some. I'll just read. I'll just read a little bit. There's a song. The first line of the song. I, I don't. I wish I knew where we were off the top of my head the first time we heard this. 
We're sitting in some church somewhere, and the first line of the song is, I never want to forget the way that I feel right now. I'm looking around the room going, where are we? What, what is this? Is this a yoga retreat? This feels really, what? And they're, I mean, I mean, you know, the 20-year-olds are just into it. Like, I never want to forget the way that I feel right now. I'm thinking, what are you talking about? Well, the song goes, I've nev- I'll never be more loved than I am right now. I always get nervous putting, putting, putting words into people's mouths when I don't know the state of the heart of the person saying that. So if you're the Apostle Paul and you say, I'll never be more loved than I am right now. Okay, fair enough, Paul. If I just say, all are welcome here. This is like the refrain of churches right now. All are welcome. Anyone come in, however messed up your life is. I like that. I like that sensibility. Come in, we'll throw our arms around you. Now let's all sing, I'll never be more loved than I am right now. Easy. Whoa, 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 whoa. We could be sealing people to an eternity in hell if we make them believe that first line of the first song. Does that make sense? If I tell a lost person, you could never possibly be more loved by God than you are right now. That's a problem if a lost person thinks that. That's not helpful. I'm I'm not going to take songs apart, but good gravy. Listen to this. I wasn't holding you up, so there's nothing I could do to let you down. Insinuation being, however I sin, we're all right. We're good. doesn't matter what I do. We're good. I know we're good. Come on, God. High fives. And if there's a thousand people singing it, it seems right. It doesn't take a trophy to make you proud. I'll never be more loved than I am right now. Here's a really popular song. I just, I just want us to just hear it in this lens of selfism. Is this a very, this is the last one I'll read, but it's a very common kind of idea in our songs. I searched the world, but it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough. And then you came along and you put me back together and every desire is now satisfied. That sounds like Jesus is a great ice cream sundae to me. Every desire is satisfied. Here in your love, there's nothing better than you. Okay, the point of these songs is that I know that God is good because of what he does for me. I am the object of the gospel. That's what is, that is what we have set. Don't tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. I've sat in 45-minute worship sets across the nation, and for 45 minutes, every song is about me. And the reason that I love God is because he, every desire is now satisfied. Now, I know that's not true. I know it's not true for the people on the stage. I know it's not true for the staff at that church. I know it's not true for the people in the seats. It's just a lie that they're singing. Every desire is satisfied. I know that's not the, that's not the statement of their lives, but what they're saying is, my measuring stick for you, Lord, is how I, how I experience you and whether you do for me what I expected you to do. Have I gone on long enough on this point? 
Take, uh, I'll just read this. Take, for instance, all the songs that are so very excited about Jesus breaking my chains. Why does this excite us so? Because he is, because we're excited about him, that he is the master and great emancipator of all time. Yes, Jesus breaks chains. But why? Is that the end of the gospel, that he breaks chains? Is it my being free, or more to the point, my feeling free? It is not God's greatest goal for my life. And it's misleading to act as if Jesus' greatest value is him setting me free. My being set free is a side effect of his greatness, not the end of his greatness. My being set free is a side effect of his greatness. It's not the end of his greatness. I know that he's the healer. I know that. I wish we sang more songs about him being the healer. He is the healer. Does he heal every time the way that we want him to on our time frame? Let me hear it loud and proud. No. But he's the king of kings. And if I'm not experiencing maximum freedom, salvation, deliverance, healing at all points, he still deserves 100% worship. It doesn't matter what I'm experiencing. So you look at Paul. You ever heard of this guy, Paul? He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Did his life go from glory to glory once he received Jesus? If Paul can't sing your songs, your songs are a problem. So was he more and more and more and more free the closer he got to the Lord? In prison for the gospel? Was it the Lord's will that he was in prison? Did his life get larger or smaller? Smaller. He was in the hollow of the Lord's hand. And he goes, sorry, you're my special one. Remember when the Lord said, I'm going to, this guy doesn't know how much he's going to suffer for my name. You read that verse and go, oh, Paul, I just want to hug Paul. I am so sorry that the Lord said that about you, Paul, that you, that you had no idea how much you were going to suffer for his name. Oh, I love you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, for suffering. But he would look at our modern bookstores. He would, he would look at the Christian page of Amazon books and go, I don't know what planet they're on. That's not the gospel. So I'm taking a little time here to hopefully externalize something that's so common for us. You might, you might be nodding your head uh, with me, but I guarantee you this stuff is in your heart somewhere. In some tiny way, there's something in you that thinks God is more God and more worthy if he does right by me. I just, that's in me. And it's just the water that we swim in. So it's better that we just know that it's there. Our attitude is warped regarding obedience because of this, because of what I've been describing, this me-centrism to the gospel. What if obeying him makes me feel more bound after I do so? Anybody ever been chased before? Anybody ever been single trying to follow Jesus before? Hello? Was it binding or freeing with these parts down here to try to follow the Lord as an adult single 
It was binding, constricting to follow him. We can think to ourselves, well, that can't possibly be God's will. When we think this way, the church goes from being grateful servant children to being entitled egomaniacs who only want God if he sets me up for life. We come to him with expectations of only increasing my pleasure and decreasing my pain. Of course, he may do those things. He often does. He's very kind, generous, savior. But again, is this why we worship him? This attitude completely undermines the necessity of suffering. It cuts the wick off of discipline and discipleship and self-denial and submission and repentance. Modern evangelicalism doesn't even know what to do with these topics. Your modern Christian Twitter feed does not know what to do with these topics. Self-denial, discipline, submission, repentance. They are absolutely, I don't know how to say this any stronger, they're absolutely necessary to becoming like Jesus. Suffering is part of the recipe. You don't end up looking like Jesus without suffering. That means constriction. Did I say conformed to the image of Christ? So what is the goal of the gospel? I'm turning a corner now. Hoping to lighten up on the bummer talk. What is the goal of the gospel? The goal of the gospel is the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God. Him. He's the goal. He's the end. He's the means to the end, and he's the end. When we stand in his presence, there won't be anything left to ask for or hope for because we'll see him face to face. It, 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 everything is in him. Do you know there's no sun needed in heaven? Do you know why? He's the light. He's everything. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Everything you want is in him. The feeling that you get from community. I see so many faces that I love of dear friends, heart-binding friends here. You know why we love each other? Because it's just a shadow of him. It's the, it's, the, it's the vaguest shadow of a relationship with him, the relationship I have with Larry and with David and with Paul. It's the vaguest shadow of a relationship with him. That's why there's redemption in our friendships, our Christian friendships, because they're references to him. Not because there's any specific value in friendship, because it leads us to him. What's the glory of a covenant? The covenant that you have with your children, the covenant you have with your spouse. You can have friendships that are covenants. What's the glory of them? Because it's a reference to him. He is the, he's the covenant maker. You don't get into relationship without him, without an absolute blood-on-blood -blood covenant. That's the only way you're in relationship with him. What's the value of nature? Why do we think, oh, this is beautiful, this is wholesome? Why do we feel this? Because it refers to him. His fingerprints are on the nature that we experience around him. He's the goal. The end of the gospel is the knowledge of God. Didn't mean to raise my voice. I didn't have that in the notes, but I did. Not all the byproducts. Please hear me say that. So let me call them out. Not fruits of the Spirit. It's not the, it's not the goal of the gospel is that you would experience the fruits of the Spirit. Not justice. 
Yes, his presence, justice rolls. Justice is not what we're after. We're after him. Not holy living. It's not the goal. Is that you get your stuff together and finally get it together. Nope, not holy living. Not revelation or prophecy. Not spiritual experiences. Not increased mercy or kindness or generosity or the, any of the thousand things we really, if we're gut honest, we want more than God himself. We really want the byproducts. And let me just say, whatever we want to use God to get is our idol. Whatever we want to use God to get is our idol. Because he just wants us for himself. Somebody say amen. Amen. Jesus died so that we who are far off might be brought close to God. Why? To build a religion, to start a revolution, to correct systems of injustice, even to evangelize? No. He has a heart to be known by his children who were once cut off from him. He himself is our goal. Um, Psalm 27.4. I'm always interested in these awesome Bible characters, our heroes of the faith, when they kind of disrobe and they actually show us their hearts and they go, if you really want to know what I'm after, Paul did that a couple of times. He's like writing chapter and chapter and chapter of doctrine. They'll go, do you really want to know what I'm after? And he tells us, he tells us in Philippians 3, you know what he says? And he says, if I can translate Paul's words, I'll suffer for him. I'll eat cake. If he gives me cake, birthday parties, I will sell it. I'll do the birthday party because he gave it to me and I can know him through that. If he puts me in dungeons, I'll take it if, if I can know him through it. If, he says, I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Hello, 2021 Christianity. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And I want to know the glorious power of the resurrection too. I want them all because you know why? I just want to know him. He's my goal. He's what I want. David said the same thing. Psalm 27, 4. We hear David praising the Lord for a whole lot of things. And he asks for a whole lot of things in the Psalms. In Psalm 27, 4, he sort of... Want to see my heart? And David says, what does he say, somebody? One thing I ask. This is what I seek. Wait, what? Is David talking? What did you say? There's actually one thing I'm after. What is it, David? You have our attention. Man after God's heart. The picture of Yeshua. Who was You're the picture. Your life is the picture. It is the symbol of the coming Messiah and his coming kingdom. What did you say? One thing I'm after. This alone do I seek, says David. I might dwell in the presence of the Lord all the days of my life, that I might just stare at him and seek him in his holy temple. Just want to know him. Huh. These guys might know more than you and me about seeking the Lord and walking in the Spirit. And they say, there's one thing we're after. You know who else said this? Yeshua. 
John 17, 3. And this is eternal life. More freedom and t-shirts for everybody. And water bottles with slogans on them. No, it said this is eternal life. That they might know you. To know him. That's it. There's no higher goal than the knowledge of God. And I'm telling you, it's the end of the gospel. We mustn't idolize any of the wonderful consequences of that knowledge. Because we don't know how they'll happen. We don't know what to, to what degree or even when, whether or not they'll happen in our lifetime. World peace. Is world peace going to happen under Yeshua's reign? Yes or no? Yes, it is. Because all kingdoms will bow to him and the government, that means the entire system of man governing man, will rest on his shoulders and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's the Lord. That's unity. That's unity. <laughs> it might, he might have his uh, heel on some necks, but there will be unity because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess he's the Lord. World peace is coming. Okay? Is it coming on your time frame? No. Is it happening in my lifetime? I don't know. I'm listening for shofar. If it happens right now, if the shofar happens, I'm just running. I don't know. I don't know what you're going to do when when you hear the shofar, but if it happened right now, I wouldn't hug you and like go He's here. Oh, he's here. I don't know why, but what I know what I'm going to do when I hear the shofar. I'm just going to start running. I'm just going to run. I just know. I'm just going to be like, yeah, yeah, that's him. That's him. He's the king. The king's here. That, that's going to happen at some point. Uh, when will total healing happen? When he sets his foot on the Mount of Olives. Is it going to happen in your lifetime? I don't know. Can I, can I say what I'm really after with Jesus is healing? And that remember the guy that came up to Paul and said, you guys have this magic trick and you're able to tell evil spirits where to go. I want that same magic trick. Paul did not have kind words to say to that man because he wanted God as an idol so that he could do something with God. What I want is for you to give me X thing. God does not like that, friends. He doesn't like that. He'll destroy that. You put yourself in the line of fire if you want to use God to get something else. I don't care if it's freedom, community, healing, whatever. Obedience is an absolute necessity for knowing him. It can be a litmus test for whether we know him or not. I don't have any confidence that anybody knows God unless they can tell me a time this is what I ask people. I mean, we, we do this as we train people. Tell me a time when he told you to do something. You didn't check in on your own opinion about whether you did it, but you did it. That's obedience. It's the natural fruit of coming into relationship with the king of the universe is that you obey him. 1 John 3, 2. 1 John 2, 3. It's as easy as one, two, three, knowing whether you're born again or not. First John 2, 3 says, we know that we have come to know him when we do what he says. Well, I had a special moment and a tear 
made its way down my face. So I knew, I knew that God was in that room, and I knew that I knew God at that moment. I didn't. I'll just say, yeah, I've seen so many tears. You wouldn't believe the stuff I've seen in my lifetime. Boy, I've seen all sorts of manifestation, tears, laughing, people rolling around on the ground, I'm jumping around, I've seen it all, seen it all. That doesn't mean anything to me, it means nothing. Well, I remember there, he told me to pick up a, a piece of trash when I was in the parking lot on the way to Kroger, and uh, I didn't really want to do it, but I did it. Oh, you have a king, you're born again. You have a king, you have a master, you have, you have a relationship with the king. Obedience, we know we've come to know him when we do what he says. Obedience, uh, if you could see me, I would stand up at this point because I'd like to stretch out and make the statement larger. Obedience should be highly esteemed by those of us who call him Lord. Obedience in our own lives and in our friends' lives. Obedience should be highly esteemed by us. It's part of the viscera of the kingdom. We walk in him as we obey him. Even to be kind to one another is an act of obedience. To be loving toward one another. This one anothering that we're doing today, it's an act of obedience. Why are we doing this? Because he told us to. Why are, we, why are we teaching about his word right now? Because he told us to. Why are we take time to worship him when we get together? Because he told us to. We should highly esteem obedience, and I submit to you that we do not. Maybe it's different in your particular circle. I doubt it. But maybe you've got a killer group of friends, but we should highly esteem obedience. I fear that we esteem people who report freedom and happiness, etc., even more than those who simply obey. Who do you esteem? Who do you think, now that's a real believer? Who comes to your mind? Is it people who know the Bible a lot? I'm not impressed. Who cares? They're well trained. They know the, what the scriptures say. Okay. That can be good or bad. Doesn't mean anything. Okay. Oh, no, no, no. There's such a joy about this person. There's just a certain lightness, positivity when she comes in the room. I'm serious. I'm, 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 I'm joking, but I'm serious. This is the way that we talk about the people that we truly esteem. They're just really happy. They're just so happy. I just know the Lord is on their life. Well, okay. I'm not saying that God makes people angry. I'm talking about what we esteem. What we should esteem is obedience. If I, if I can just tell a little story that just came to mind, and forgive me, I'm just going to tell a little story on my wife here. When I was considering my wife, and dating her in college, and I'm asking around, what, what, what's her story? What do you think about her? I remember Kevin Eckert said, that girl has obeyed Jesus when it cost her so much. I thought, do you have her number? <laughs> I mean, I know I like her. I like her. She's pretty, and I think I have fun with her. Okay. Is she obedient? Do we esteem obedience in one another? It's a sad state when somebody could, for instance, destroy covenant and think that they're at peace with God. This person has exchanged the knowledge of God, which always includes obeying his statutes, for that which he or she supposes God will produce, 
sorry, exchanging knowledge of God for that which he or she supposes God will produce for them. Peace, support, affirmation, unconditional love. Boo on any of us who help people into this poison. Boo, boo on us. Boo on any teaching or music or relationship or podcast or reading that would reinforce, reinforce this hellish rebellion. We mustn't exalt the desired outcome over knowing God himself. This is so important. Does anybody have a question? Sarah's question is, could you give a, give a specific example of what this looks like in our relationships when really what somebody's after is freedom or affirmation? Favorite. <laughs> That's a favorite. Now, don't judge me. That often means I'm about to share sin with you, and I don't want you to tell me that it's sin. Okay, that's usually what don't judge me means. You have my approval no matter what you do because we're good old friends. We need to repent of that. We just need to spit it out of our mouths. Now, I'm not saying you drop your friends when they sin. Can I get an amen for all my old friends? But if when confronted with sin, anybody we know says, can't go there. We actually have a very specific uh, recipe, instruction, kit for what to do in that circumstance. Can anybody tell me where that is? It's Matthew 18. We're told what to do. Did you know that Matthew 18 isn't for the Bishop of Canterbury to execute on the Lord of Trent when he violates some... It's for you to handle with your best friend. Matthew 18 is for me and you to handle our relationships. And I'll, and I'll also say this about Matthew 18. Matthew 18 isn't about, I got offended at what you did because what you did was personally offensive to me. It was against me that you did this. Guys, we need to have the Lord's interests above our own interests. That being the case, if someone uses unclean language around you, I don't care if you're personally offended. That's not what's at stake. The question is, what does the Lord think of the language? If the Lord would say this is unclean, then friendship would be for you to call your friend on the carpet and say the Lord doesn't like the way you're talking right now. Are you saying you're offended by what? No, I, I don't even know what you mean. It's irrelevant whether I'm offended or not. It doesn't mean anything. I'm standing here right now before you as a representative of the king. And you and I, our job is to grab one another by the scruff of the neck and push one another towards being conformed to his image. Yeah. That's, our, that's what a friendship is. What did you think a friendship was? I really like that thing you painted. It's really nice. You did a great job. You're very talented. Is that what friendship is? Not for us. We exchanged that life. Didn't you know that? That everyone who came to Christ died to the old life? 
I'm crucified. You ever heard that one? Abby's heard that one. I'm crucified in Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith to the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what my life is about now. So if you come into my circle, we're going to have fun. And we can play pickleball. Yeah. Hallelujah. But friendship is that I'm... I'm kicking you in the tail to go like you got to get closer to him you, you there's something wrong with you right now you got a bad attitude i'm kicking you in the pants how come on just talk to the lord about it you, you, there's something wrong you got you got unforgiveness in your heart i can i mean i've had hello i've had that said to me very recently by old friends with gray beards as i hear you talking there's an edge to the way that you're talking there seems to be i think there's bitterness in your heart this is what when my friends talk to me like that, I, I just scoot a little bit closer to them. I just go like, I like you a lot. Because you're helping me towards life when you do that for me. And Sarah asks, what about the conviction of the Holy Spirit versus us calling something out in somebody? Did the Lord use people to teach you about him? Or did you, you went alone for a walk in the woods and suddenly you understood... Jesus died for my sins. No. Romans 10 says they can't know unless someone preached to them. It's a, it's, a, it's a shame that we pick and choose the things that we think that the Lord could say to somebody through a person. Because the way that he wants to speak his word to you and I, yes, it's in prayer. But there's no question about it. Just read the scriptures that the way he wants to affirm what he's saying and clarify what he's saying is through people, the people who are around you. What I find is that we throw up our hands sometimes and go, well, I'll let the Lord deal with it with them. James says, if you see someone who's drowning and you do nothing to save them, naughty, <laughs> to, to uh, paraphrase, James, don't do that. So if you see someone walking towards poison, you speak to them out of love. I'm not, I'm not Mrs. Schoolmarm, rule, rule minder with a ruler in my hand. I'm your friend and I love you and this can't be tolerated because it's poisonous to your life. I think we should err on the side of sharing our hearts with our friends. We need a culture where we go, obedience, obedience is sunlight to us. We have to walk in obedience. If we're not walking in obedience individually, how can you walk in obedience as a family? If you're not walking in obedience with your family, how can we walk in obedience together? What are we doing here? Are we, did we get together to play patty cake this morning? What are we doing? We're here to, so that we can bounce our lives against this thing and that we might come closer to him, that we might know the truth. What do you think iron sharpening iron means? Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpening iron is you have something, you have something on your edge that keeps you from striking like sharp steel in the name of Jesus. There's a barnacle on you. And with force, I'm going to slap that thing off of you so that you're clean and sharp in the spirit. Does that sound comfortable to anybody? Does that sound like a pat on the back to anybody? Iron sharpening iron. 
Have you ever seen a blacksmith at work? Hello? Smash. Crash. So Jesus said, blessed is he who's not offended on my account. We live in an age when the church, um, by and large, no longer talks about sin. That's one of the great uses of a preacher would be to open up God's word and remind me, I know that I know that bitterness is a sin. Would it hurt any of us to hear a sermon next Sunday on bitterness? No, it'd be great for us. But that's not popular to teach on sin and to say, you people are sinners and you actively sin. And let me tell you where you're tasting death and then you can stop it. That's actually really helpful for somebody to do that. But that's not, probably the podcasts you're listening to are not identifying your sin for you, although it would be really helpful. It doesn't mean everybody needs to drink out of the fire hose of truth every time somebody, you know, I'm not saying, oh brother, but I think of a way that things can be twisted. Stephen Manuel says we should argue with each other all the time. Every time, we, every time you think it's anybody's in a sin, that you should call out their sin. Oh, that, no, I don't believe that. I believe that calling out sin is almost completely absent from our Christian community right now. And that is a godless statement. What is the culture of our friendships? Are we shocked at sin in one another? When we see sin in one another, are we shocked and offended and troubled? Or do we think, these are my nice buddies, I have nice buddies, and, they, and I'm one of their nice buddies, and so whatever we report to each other, we have made a pact with one another, what you can get from me is niceness in return. Or, the, if that's the case, the Bible would say that we have lost all of our sensitivity and it would compare us to the pagan world, that we've lost our sensitivity to sin. And that a friendship is one in which, as somebody's telling you the story of their conversation with their wife, you're looking at them like this, in your heart. In your face, you're doing like this. And in your heart, the way that we serve one another is that we can see things in each other that we can't see in ourselves. You know that a real friend goes, you have spinach in your teeth. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. How, that was for lunch. It's 4 o'clock. Oh, I feel like it's such a stooge. That's a friend. Because they, they don't, they're not worried about what's happening between you and them. That's not even an issue. That's rock solid. I'm worried about you and the fact that didn't you just have a meeting with your boss at 2 o'clock? Uh, yes, I did. You didn't have a job interview today, did you? Oh, because we're, we're concerned for their good. Of course you would call out sin for somebody if you would call out spinach between their teeth. You're like, I don't know if you see this, but you're so trapped in rejection that every time you ever talk about your conversations with your wife, all you talk about is how much rejection you feel. You can't even hear the content of what she has said to you. Matthew 18 isn't, we're not supposed to be judgmental and shrill, but we're supposed to be involved and interested enough to speak up and care when something's going amiss. Okay, obedience. Back to obedience. Obedience 
means a constant and complete subversion of self below God's dictates. That's obedience. It means that self will never, ever win again. That what it's me versus God, my feelings versus God, my logic versus God, and his ways, and his word. Did you know that the word of God is the sperma of God? His name is baked into his word. The way that you respond to his word is how you respond to him. Whether you obey his word is how you feel about God. Well, I like God, but I have a real problem with that verse. Back up. You don't like God. You're, not, you're just devoted to yourself over him. Listen, the Lord told me this a long time ago. The things I can say, I learned them here. I learned them here. The Lord told me a long time ago, when you get to decide which of my commandments you will and won't obey, you're the Lord, not me. I don't think I like the way you said that. <laughs> if you get to decide which of my commands you will and won't obey, you're the Lord. And he becomes for us the means of feeling spiritual or moral. He's helped me to feel moral because I follow these things. There's this one thing about like opposing people. That's not really me. That's for somebody else. All right, we know who the Lord is. It's you. you you've decided what you will and won't do. So, so obedience means itself will never, ever win again. This is why Jesus said that anybody who has any interest in following him must deny themselves. They go, they go together. Following him, denying self, they go together. The pop Christian line that tells you God will fix your life and give you the successful life that everybody's after is vapid and vain and vacant. I don't think Paul would have sung the song, I never want to forget the way that I feel right now. <clears throat> the pop church has believed and continues to regurgitate such a perverted me-first gospel that our knee-jerk to any demands for obedience, humility, submission to the Lord, self-denial, or suffering is to call it legalism. <clears throat> that is our get-out-of-jail-free card. It's our eject button. Well, that's legalism. You know, you should watch your mouth so that no filthy language comes out of your mouth. Whoa, sounds pretty legalistic. What's all happening up in here? You know, I've heard you say twice in the last month that you, you reported about yourself you drank too much. You said you went to the wedding and drank too much. You know that? That's a problem. Whoa, I didn't know it was going to be legalism hour here. Whoa, what's happening here? That's, that's where we go very naturally. So just define the gospel for you real quick. Paul does this for us. It's done elsewhere in scripture. Common man's definition for you. The gospel is that Yeshua died for sinners who when they turn to him can be reconciled to the Father and result in holy lives. It's true about anything and it's true about the gospel. I don't know if you've heard this phrase before but it's very helpful for me for any kind of spiritual truth. The devil owns the ditches. I don't know if you've ever heard that. The devil owns the ditches. I learned that little phrase growing up. What it means is there are extremes on both sides of God's truth. 
and the devil owns them both. So for instance, well, tomorrow's Halloween, everybody. So here's one extreme for you. There's pagan roots to Halloween. And some people, when they dress up, they're dressing up as demons and prostitutes. No one should dress up ever. And people have given out poison and candy. No one should ever have candy. No trick-or-treating. There should be no fun on this day at all. It's a godless and holy day. No holidays while we're at it. No holidays. Okay. Ease up, cowboy. Those people exist, by the way. I would call that one ditch of extremism. The other ditch, which are, these are both owned by the devil, would be to go, hey, it's all cool, everything's fine. You know, witches and spirits, and I know it's just part of, why the kids get out a Ouija board for fun at Halloween. It's fun, it's fine. Whatever, the kids stay out all night. I don't know what they do. They, they say they killed a cat. I don't know, it's fun, kids. <laughs> You know, high schoolers, whatever. Those are two bad extremes for handling Halloween. Okay? Just extremes are bad. Somewhere in the middle might be the way. The gospel is like that, that the devil owns the ditches regarding the gospel. I'll just describe the ditches to you. One of the ditches regarding the gospel is legalism. Legalism is when we say that you can achieve salvation or right standing before God by behaviors or discipline. Some people call it rules as a, as a shorthand. You can achieve salvation or right standing before God by behaviors and discipline. That line of thinking adds to the gospel, which we're told right at the end of the Bible, Revelation, you don't add to the gospel. That's a big, 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 no, no. What they're saying is that turning to Jesus isn't enough. You have to do all sorts of other things to be in right standing with God. People who are legalistic forbid things that God approves of. You can watch out for that. Is drunkenness forbidden in the scriptures? Couldn't hear it from the cheap seats. Drunkenness is forbidden. It is against God's law to be drunk. Is alcohol forbidden according to the scriptures? Alcohol is no more forbidden in the scriptures because drunkenness is a sin than eating food is forbidden in the scriptures because gluttony is a sin, which it is. Some people have seen the destruction that comes from alcoholism, drunkenness, and they just expand the fence a little bit, just expand a little bit and say, all alcohol is forbidden in our, the way that we do the faith. That is legalism because you have just forbidden something that the Lord does not forbid. Now, on this specific subject, I didn't know I was going to use that as an example. I'll just say, 
alcohol is not part of the culture of my home. We don't casually drink. That's not how we enjoy the Michigan, watching Michigan lose. Am I with you? Hey, Paul. All right. It's not part of the culture of my home, but I don't, I, I, how could I forbid it? I can't forbid it because the Lord doesn't forbid it. That's legalism. Or to insinuate that not getting drunk would be your way into a relationship with God. This would be the way for you to experience salvation. That is not true. There's only one way to the Father, and it's through the blood of Jesus. It's not through activities. It's not through the blood of bulls. It's not through any other sacrifice that you could possibly do in your life. It's not through reading the Bible. It's not through quiet times. It's not through coming and sitting under rainy tents to listen to somebody talk. You're not. You don't get any points with God on a salvation basis because you follow his word. Are you, could you be, walk closer to God if you obey his word? Could you be walking in step with the Spirit by obeying the Lord's commands? Yes. Now here's a, here's a really precious one if you happen to love the Lord. Can you please the Lord by walking in His commands? Yes. Yes. There's a big difference between you're not going to be born again if you never get drunk. Okay, that's not true. Not true. You could You can... Go to heaven and have gotten drunk. That's possible. Can you walk with the Lord if drunkenness is something that is just in your heart? Is something that, I'm sorry, it's just kind of one of the things I do when I go to weddings three times a year. And it's something we do, you know, New Year's Eve. No. Sorry. You're walking counter to God's ways if that's, if that's your attitude. There's a big difference here. So a legalist would say, you can't know the Lord because you're not walking in my favorite group of little pet sins that I have decided are the important ones. The only way to the, to, to the Father is Jesus and his blood. John 6, 28, they said to him, now what do we have to do to do the works of God? And Jesus answered them, you want to know the work of God? Here it is. Believe in him who he has sent. And they were like, hmm. What have what we been doing all this time? But these guys just, they just like, I knew there's a whole bunch of rules. They came to Jesus and said, what are the rules now? And Jesus said, there's no rules. You believe in me. You're, you made it. And their minds went, how, how is that possible? Because they had this legalism. That's one of the ditches of the gospel is legalism. By the way, that's not our problem right now. Legalism. The other ditch ready? It's called licentiousness, scripturally. The fancy doctrine word is antinomianism. Antinomian means no law. Licentiousness is approving what God forbids and thinking that walking in sin is okay. That's licentiousness and it's the sin of our age. It describes the time you're living in right now in this place, in this culture right now. Licentiousness. Approving what God forbids and thinking that walking in sin is okay. 
it's no big deal. God shrugs his shoulders at sin. Eh, it's okay. We're all part of the same family. This is our problem. Here comes 2 Peter chapter 2. Tell me which mega church podcast YouTube page would apply to this. With lofty but empty words, they appeal to the sensual passions of the flesh and entice those who are just escaping from others who live in error. They promise them freedom. Can you believe that very word was planted in this verse? They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves to depravity. For a man is slave to whatever has mastered him. Studying the Bible is a command. It can't save you. It's one of God's commands. So is God legalistic? Of course not. But Martin Luther, who was trying this this problem of legalism versus licentiousness is a very, very, very old problem with our faith. Many wonderful men have struggled over this. The book of James is written about it. Galatians is written about it. And Martin Luther struggled, and he says, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's just like saying that obedience is a natural byproduct of knowing the Lord, which it is. The Bible proves that out. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It always Obedience always trails after salvation. It's a, it's a lagging indicator of salvation. Here's James 2. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. And I'll show you my faith with my works. You believe there's one God? That's great. The demons believe that and they tremble. But do you want to know, oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? Look at all of our worship songs. All we just want to say over and over to ourselves is God loves me. He lo no, he really loves me. He loves me. I swear he loves me. No, let's sing the chorus one more time. He totally approves every freaking thing I do. Let's sing it one more time, guys. We're going to sing that he loves me. And there's this maniacal demand that he approve of me no matter what I do. I read the lyrics. I never held you up so I could never let you down. Your doctrine stinks. You smell of the age. Not true. You can let your father down. You can disappoint and hurt your father. You can. One would be by ignoring his statutes. When God commands things, he's talking to you. We, we have this up in my daughter's room, that when he says what he loves in a woman is quietness and submission, who do you think he's talking to? He, he wants that for you. Do you think he's mean? He's standing in my way of being what I always dreamed to be as a woman. Well, then you didn't dream of being a godly woman. Because what he wants, he tells us what he wants. Hey, guys, if you have a problem being oppositional and you've never walked through Matthew 18 with somebody, you equally have a problem. Because being oppositional is not acceptable in 2021. I don't know if you've been sleeping 
for the last three years. But being oppositional is culturally unacceptable. Guess what? A man of God is oppositional or he doesn't follow Jesus. That's part of our job is to know God's standard. First Corinthians 2 says the man of God judges everything he sees. Absolutely everything. To walk in here, I told you what I thought of this setup because when I drove on, I saw you people, I was judging it discerning what does the Lord say about this and I go oh, he loves this I want to tell them that he loves this you know what the Lord really loves this gathering I just want you all to know that the, the man of God judges everything everything he comes across what's put in front of him to eat he judges it a YouTube video he judges it a movie that he presses play on in his home he judges it everything judges it Jesus says in Matthew 7 do not judge or you will be judged. Do not condemn or you will be condemned is the, is the idea. So when I see, anybody heard of Pride Month? When you see that thing rejoiced over, what happens in your heart? Do not condemn, says Jesus, or you will be condemned. Do you think those degenerates are so perverted and sick, they're going to get the hell they deserve someday? Yeah, you sharpen up your knives. Yeah, make some weird fantasy of what's gonna get. They're gonna get what they got coming. Hold on, Paul would say, "Weren't you like them at some point?" Put the gun down, back away from the table. So we discern something like that, like Pride Month, and we go so against God's heart, so wrong, so perverse. Oh God, mercy. We just need your mercy, Lord. Oh, God, please keep judgment. Please keep condemnation away from my lips. It's you, Lord, that will judge ultimately. And the, when the rain of his judgment falls, we'll all get wet. So, Lord, thank you for not treating me as my sins deserve. And, oh, Lord, have mercy on this godless nation in which I live. I live among a people of unclean lips. I live among a people of pride months. Oh, God, forgive us, Lord. So when I hear the righteous, there he is. When I hear the righteous man judges all things, I hear that he makes a discerning evaluation in the spirit about absolutely everything. When I hear Jesus saying, do not judge, I hear him saying, do not condemn. So we are not people who don't make evaluations. We judge everything. We make evaluations about everything. And we say, that's unclean. We won't expose, I won't expose my family to that thing because it's unclean. Well, I made a judgment. Good job. That's your job. You're supposed to make judgments. You're supposed to decide what you take in. Comes into your eyes, comes into your mouth, comes into your ears. You have to, you have to make judgments. If you want to know God, you find his commands to be an exciting invitation because he's telling you avenues of knowing him. When he says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, do you have to, do you have to honor the Sabbath to go to heaven? No, you don't. Is there an invitation for you to know more of God in the Sabbath? Yes. If you love him, you see his commands. I'm quoting the Bible here. They're not grievous to you. His commands are not grievous. 
they're an invitation that's an honor. They excite you. Similarly, you would feel the same way about his judgments. My goal with God isn't that he would criticize me as little as possible. If that's the case, I don't want to hear any of his judgments. But if it's knowing him, I want to hear all of his judgments. And when he says, Stephen, you know what your problem is? I should be like this. What is it? <laughs> tell me what it is. Because I know that when you tell me your judgments, you're about to open up a new doorway that's been closed for me in knowing you. And whether it's been my thickness of heart because I'm callous or generations or whatever, a doorway has been closed that I didn't know was closed. Oh, Lord, show me what it is. I'll repent. Of course, that's no problem. I'll repent and I can know you. If you want to use God to get something else, like personal freedom, then you find his commands to be an onerous imposition and you screech and rail against them. When we say that the call to obedience is legalism, when somebody mentions one of God's statutes and people say legalism, they pull that out, we are parroting slogans penned by Satan. We should be pushing one another towards deepening levels of obedience all the time. Like non-stop review of God's dictates and a constant pep rally toward each other of excitedly urging toward obedience, obedience, obedience. That's not legalism, it's love. That's love toward one another. Go like, obey him. There's, by the way, there's a couple of things that we can obey the Lord in. His scriptures, his commands in scripture. Another is matters of conscience. So let me give you a specific example, going back to alcohol. I have a friend who reported to me, I feel that God has told me not to, not to touch this person who's had a problem with alcohol, not to touch alcohol for the next year. That is not written in the scriptures anywhere. This is a debatable matter. This is a matter of conscience, which my friend reported to me. From that point forward, for the next year, the way that I serve the Lord in their life is to keep bumping them back to what they reported they felt the Spirit of God telling them. Is that legalism? No. No. It's obedience. I'm trying to help them toward obedience. When people tell me that God has told them something, I always get very... Like this, did you say, are you saying God told you that? No, don't say it. No, don't say it because it's something you really want. I really want to lose 20 pounds. I think God's telling me, did you say God told you to lose 20 Okay, I just want to lose 20 pounds. Okay, better, 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 better. When somebody, I mean, especially like a guy that I'm close to, I'm discipling this guy, and he said, he reports something I think God is saying. I'd say like, why don't you sit on that? For two weeks come back and then you tell me i've been praying about it i'm sure and if a guy says to me i think the lord is saying this thing we're going to start doing it today because at any cost i'm going to push you toward obedience because what is this about it's about knowing him well now that's the doorway if the lord told you not to touch alcohol for the next year he just told you the doorway you're supposed to walk through and I'm either a servant of his word or I'm, I'm opposed. You're either for me or against me. So I just throw that out, that we need to take very seriously what, what people are saying about whether they're, what they're hearing God say to him, them even on matters of conscience. 
Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold resolutely to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Spurring one another on. We're so afraid in our age of thinking that deeds equal salvation that we don't think good deeds are anything. This says that we're supposed to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created to do good works in Christ Jesus, which he prepared in advance for us to do. According to that verse, the good works are why you were created. I'm not interested in those because I don't want to be getting legalistic on you. What? This is why my friend was created. I got to help him towards the good deeds that God prepared in advance for him to do. And the more that I know him, I'm going to, the more that I learn my friend, I'm going to learn right where to kick him in the butt to, to go right toward the things that God has made him to do. That's what we're all, let us consider, like sit up and dream. How could I spur my friend Michael? How could I spur him? You know what a spur is, cowboy lovers? It goes right in the hip. It's not a pat on the back. It's a jab in the hip. Hey, what's that? That's a spur. How could I spur that guy on towards love and good deeds? That's a sharp prick in his hindquarters to spur him on toward love and good deeds. Is anybody interested in being this kind of community with other people? Yeah. Let me ask you this. Is, is anybody interested in having someone like that in your life? Yeah. Would you give your right arm to have somebody who would spur you towards the thing that God has called you to so you yeah. could know him better? Well, let's just decide we're going to be that community in Jesus' name. We're just going to spur one another on towards obedience. And if I think you've had one too many beers, I won't say, that's his business. He's, he's a grown-up. I'm so sick of hearing that phrase. Well, he's an adult. I think to myself, well, he's not acting like one. Why don't you help? Well, he's an adult. He makes his own choices. Yeah, his choice is he's going over the cliff with the do not go sign, and he's careening over it. Well, he's an adult. I guess he wanted to crash his car and die. Come on, man. He's had one too many. You need to put your hand on his hand, stand up over him, look through his bleary eyes and say, hey, I'm your bro. You're stopping now. I don't want you to, you're on the verge of sin here. I don't like the way you're talking about your ex. I'm sorry, I know there's hurt there. I don't, I'm not here to judge you, I'm spurring you on. I'm trying to think of examples that get right up in your lap because we're all guilty of either not receiving spurring, but more, probably you've not received a lot of attempts at spurring but you've had plenty of opportunities to spur. You didn't want to do it. Because you might think I'm legalistic. <clears throat> not interested in that. That's, that's so lost. We're not doing that. Don't worry, everybody. I'm on my last paragraph. Hebrews 3.13 says, Exhort one another daily. The counselor knows what exhortation is. It's when you get right up in somebody's face and say, This is your next step. I'm pushing you a little bit towards that thing. 
This says exhort one another daily. That's in your Bible. It's Hebrews 3.13. Exhort one another daily as long as we call it today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, biblically, legalism is a bigger problem than licentiousness because legalism can actually prevent you from receiving the, the grace of God. Again, I don't see that legalism is the problem of our age. I see licentiousness as the problem of our age. And we don't want to be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And I'm telling you, from where I sit, presently the church is hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We're hardened to the voice of God. So faith alone brings salvation, but is always followed by a lifetime of obedience. To call people toward that obedience, again, is not bad. It would be bad if we loaded it up with saving importance, which it cannot have. Obedience does please the Lord, and finding out what pleases Him is one of our commands. As a matter of fact, that's Ephesians 5.10. Find out what pleases the Lord. You should be interested in finding out what pleases him. This is one of the things that pleases him, obedience. But of course, there are things that hurt him and disappoint him and anger him and frustrate him. And following his dictates brings him pleasure. Now, the religious spirit agrees with legalism. And it wants people justified before God by what they do. It also says that there's only one way to be obedient. So, for instance, when the Lord says, honor the Sabbath... Legalism will tell you exactly how you must honor the Sabbath because I've thought up the ten ways. Listen to my ten ways, and I'm going to judge you based on those ten ways. Well, do you have do you light a candle? Because we light a candle. Okay, uh, that's not in the scriptures, so back off, candle guy. The way that you observe the Sabbath, we well, we grew up in a Baptist church. We called Sunday the Lord's Day. And I was told that was the Sabbath, Sunday. Well, hold on a second. Now, if we looked at what the Jews did back in the day, Saturday should be the Lord's Day. Well, let's argue about it. That'll really, oh, that'll be really. No. It doesn't matter how you observe. The, Jesus said himself, uh, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. So the way that you exercise that, the way that you do that, hey, it's between you and God. You just, just obey him when he says, honor the Sabbath, just honor the Sabbath. Legalism, I've already said this as much, but I'll just repeat it. Legalism is largely a phantom that modern Christians scream about all the time, but it really isn't even a threat to us. A much greater threat is licentiousness, which is the belief that God is somehow trapped to give me grace. Whether I obey him or not, his love is mine. I've got, I'm holding God over a barrel. And the more that I, that's what I was trying to, when I was acting maniacal about singing those songs, it's like we think we can force God, you will approve of me unconditionally. You love me unconditionally. You do. You absolutely have to prove what I do. It doesn't work that way, friends. We don't hold God over a barrel. And, and um, matter of fact, it's interesting when the scripture says God will not be mocked. Um, He's talking about you're not just going to just love sin and throw your arms around sin and you've just got him. 
And so, oh, okay, I approve of them anyways because they're mine. I, okay, all right, I know, I know. No, it doesn't work that way. We, we're supposed to walk, even if it's children, we're supposed to walk in the fear of God, which is a whole nother, I just peeked open through a window, I'm not talking about the fear of God, close that back up. But fear of God is supposed to be part and parcel with the way that we live. And the kind of presumptuousness that licentious demand, licentiousness demands, we presume upon God. Whatever I do, you have to approve me. It's absolutely out. It's a license for sin, and Paul addresses that explicitly. <clears throat> so what I find, and this is just a good question for anybody, is if you ever accuse something of being legalistic, it might be. That's possible. But if you accuse something of be, being legalistic, I would immediately ask you, are you being licentious to accuse anything of being legalistic? I would ask you. If you're, if you, okay, so for instance, I, I, I want to make disciples. It's something I've tried to do for decades. So I'm, if you're trying to make a disciple, a young man comes to you and go like, I'm born again. I know I'm not a disciple. I want to be a disciple. Okay, great. Well, okay, here's one thing that we're going to do. We're going to get up. When do you get up? Eight. Okay. We're going to start getting up at seven. And I'm going to start chasing you down. Okay, this is what usually happens. Yeah, okay, that sounds, whew, that'd be tough. All right, let's try. And then we start doing it. I don't know about waking up at seven anymore. Why? It's just, uh, I don't know, it doesn't really work with me and God and me. I don't know, me. I don't think God's requiring that of me. Do you feel like God told you to come to me to help you be a disciple? Yeah, no question. Okay, do you think that, um, do you receive me as some kind of leader in your life? Oh, yeah, man, for sure. Get your butt up at 7 in the morning. Because you're not following what he wants in your life right now if you don't get up at 7. Whoa, I don't know, that maybe sounds like legalistic, man. You're kind of saying like, well, my relationship with God is, you're saying my relationship with God is like dependent on whether I get up at seven? In a way, yes, it is. Are you going to follow, do you want him? Are you following him right now? What did you say you want? Well, I want to be his disciple. Okay, that's going to cost you something. I'm not saying you're not born again. I'm not saying you don't know Jesus. I'm not saying his blood isn't applied to you. I'm saying you have reached an impasse. And the only way to cross that threshold is with obedience. We must be a community that says we're going to get him because the knowledge of God is what we want with our lives. And there's nothing that he can't demand of us. And we are going to grab each other again by the scruff of the neck and go, I, you, we've got to urge one another toward him. That means increased discipleship. It doesn't mean increased affirmation. It means increased discipleship that we're going to push in together toward him. And we can't, listen, if we get into legalism, we can start screaming about that. Okay? And we'll talk about that. That's not our problem right now. We're not so diligent about discipleship and everyone's giving every minute of their lives to following him. And all oh, our diets are so restricted now and our schedules are so restricted because we just can't help but think every minute of every day is for, uh, not our problem. That is not where we are. But obedience, if he tells you to obey, I got to say everything's on the line when he tells you to obey, when he tells you what to do. 
everything's on the line. And so loving community is that we urge and spur one another on. So I'm done now. I'll just tell you a couple of ways that we could respond to this. Or just repent. Just lay down my arms and go, Lord, okay. How, wherever I'm guilty on this, Lord, I lay it down before you. Would you grow me up? Grow me up, God. I would even say, I don't know if this is your heart, but I would just say about me and my people around, God, this is hard for us to hear. We don't even want to hear that licentiousness is one of the problems of the gospel because I'd rather just be lazy and have you pat me on the back for it. But that's actually not what you call me to. You actually call me to a life of sacrifice and obedience and self-denial. Who wants self-denial? That is not the American way. They did not tell me that on the commercials, self-denial. And yet, Lord, I'm, these things are foreign to me. I find I'm a stranger to your holiness. I find it's foreign to me, Lord. Would you please grow me up so we can repent? I will, this afternoon, we'll give some time to do that. You should talk to the Lord and you should talk to others about these things. Just talk. Lord, where have I used you? What do I love more than you? Where do I excuse the things that you oppose? Oh, God. When have I tried to be a nice friend instead of a godly brother? Oh God, would you judge the fear of man in me? Would you judge my need to be nice and comfortable and affirming? Would you judge my need to be affirmed? And I'll just say lastly, we want to be iron sharpeners by golly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be iron sharpeners. I'll pray and we'll dismiss.